0: Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Stephen Craig and Parker Dillman. This is episode 150.
1: Uh, how would how this happen? Somebody's letting us do this and I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> so just like we've gotten to 150 episodes, so congratulations to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. But also congratulations to one of our Slack members, Mobius Striptease. His uh, Pulse Generator won first place in their Senior Design Expo. Woohoo, congratulations. Uh, so I, I, first, I thought it was really awesome that they won their Senior Design Contest or Expo or whatever um, project thing at their uh, college. But the fact that his screen name is also Mobius Striptease, I'm like, I can say that on the on the podcast. This,
0: this guy's a winner. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, Mobius, if you could share, I don't think you've ever shared your project on the uh, Slack, so go ahead and uh, share it with us if you can. Yeah, and maybe we'll showcase it on an episode. Yeah. Um, And then in also Macrofab news, there was an article written about Macrofab, the uh, Innovation Map, which is a website that does, like, startups... News articles on startups and stuff. They had an article about us, and the article is titled Houston Electronics Manufacturing Company Gears Up for Growth. And they basically talk about uh, how MacFab has grown over the last two years. So go check that out. Um, that's all I'm going to say about that. It's a pretty good article. So it's like tooting our own horn, so to speak. <laughs> Just a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so on to the podcast, I guess. Um, so I've been working on that Raspberry, yeah, Raspberry Pi 3 <laughs> compute module board. Um, I got the uh, audio part routed. That's the uh, PCM5122. That was really easy. I basically just, like, lifted it off my previous board I designed and just plopped it onto my compute module board. And that's a, that's a TI guy, right? Yeah, that's a TI part, and it's a... I2S, I2C controlled uh, IC for doing, you know, it's an audio DAC.
0: Did, did you follow their recommended layout in the datasheet, or did you kind of cook up your own? Um,
1: I don't think it has a recommended layout. Oh, it just has guidelines? Yeah, it just has guidelines. So I actually I followed all the guidelines. This is that DAC that you tested oh so long ago. Uh, this, the, the one that had the, uh, that you did the different capacitors on, right? Yeah, 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 the different loadouts yeah, yeah. and we ended yeah. up finding that the cheap one sounded better.
0: Yeah, in a in a blind test, yeah, that yeah. was pretty great.
1: <laughs> the film caps for some reason were too perfect in replicating the sound. <laughs> <laughs> too
0: perfect. <laughs> too expensive.
1: Yeah, also too expensive, yeah, yeah. Um and then I got the LAN or oh, that's LAN 9514, which is the USB hub and Ethernet controller. I think mm-hmm. that's my microchip, if I recall.
0: Yeah, that's um, right. It is. I'm looking at it right now.
1: But uh, I got that routed on the board. And that comes in a QFN64
0: package, right? Yeah, it's a brutal fan out. <laughs> <laughs> that took. A oh, this days. is one of those. This is one of those weird uh, packages that has like, I don't know, like the stepped edges and kind of beveled edges. Yeah. Yeah, those look. Those look really cool. I like those. Um So how this works is it connects to the USB port,
1: uh, the upstream USB port on the uh, BCM2835, which is that's the Raspberry Pi chip. Um, So you connect to the only upstream USB through that. uh, And then you also connect like pin 44, which is the Ethernet 25 megahertz output from the chip. Now, you have to configure that as well through like your uh, config.txt you have to tell it that pin 44 is that? Yeah, you have to tell it that um, pin 44 should be outputting 25 megahertz so that you can control or give the clock to the Ethernet controller, basically. And then um, pin 31 on the Raspberry Pi or on the BCM2835 needs to be connected to the LAN reset on this chip as well. And so basically it holds the chip and reset until it starts oscillating and then it lifts it and then everything function should function i haven't tested it yet because i haven't built it yet so that's how Wh- it should work which
0: which pin is the bagel pin
1: you know it doesn't have a bagel pin so oh. yeah y- you didn't get the
0: upgraded mod no, i didn't get the upgraded raspberry
1: it- pi yet <laughs> um and so i i found a form link i'll post it in the uh, podcast description that's like kind of like someone who's used this LAN nine five one four and gone through all the heartache
0: and troubles of getting it working and 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 he just wrote he it, one of those famous uh, posts that's just like do this and it works. Well, no, actually, the worst thing is he
1: says this is my schematic and it's a Google Drive doc, and that Drive doc is dead now. Uh, <laughs> and so I had to basically piece together. So wait, you had to actually read it? <laughs> yeah, I read the whole thing and and piece together kind of what how to make it work. Oh, nice. Um, so on that part of the schematic, I still need to add USB current limiting. Uh, I don't know exactly how I'm going to do that yet because how the Raspberry Pi does it is kind of funky and they do some like manipulation of the signal that comes out of the chip they use to like make the, uh, uh, BCM 2835, like react properly. Um, in terms of current limiting. Yeah. So like if it, if it, if the current limiting on the USB port, cause it's only limited to, uh, 500 milliamps, um, When you hit that limit, you need to tell the uh, LAN 9514 that you're you're going to current limit it so it can report back to Linux through the driver saying, hey, USB port blah is over current limit, shut it down. And then it tells the chip to shut it down and goes back down the chain.
0: That sounds like way too many steps for current limiting,
1: you know? Well, you can't just, like, shut off the device because what if, like, Linux is like currently using it or something
0: yeah and I I, I get the uh the, you, you could you could garble or corrupt something or you know there's there's a lot of stuff but I I guess the current limiting in my mind is is more of like a protection safety thing but it, but uh you, you have to you have to tell the parents I suppose yeah, yeah you have to tell the parents like... what you're doing all <laughs> yeah. right right um
1: so I haven't figured figured out a chip for that yet uh'll that's probably the next kind of step to fit figure out um and i also found this uh really cool board called the cm3 home which is kind of like it's kind of what i'm building except it's more of like a super general purpose i'm kind of like specifying this build as this is the subsystem of the raspberry pi 3 on our new uh Pinator pinball system right um so this is like a straight up motherboard uh, for the Raspberry Pi 3 compute module. And his name, the guy who designed it is, uh, I hope I don't mispronounce this, but Gu- Guido? Sounds like a Star Wars character. Ottaviana? Ottaviani? Ottaviani. Guido Odoviani. I'm so sorry that I butchered that so bad. <laughs> Both of us, yeah, sorry. Um, but yeah, he made his own motherboard basically for the Raspberry Pi 3 and he has all the schematics and stuff online and so I've been using that as kind of like guidelines because he's also using this LAN 9514 chip for the USB hub and Ethernet controller. Uh, so that's been a really good resource so I really wanted to give him a shout out for for what he's put together there. Yeah, his board looks really jam-packed full of stuff. Yeah, it's got like like twice as many stuff that uh, stuff on it than my board's going to have.
0: Oh my gosh! Yeah, uh, twelve to twenty-four volt DC. It has LAN, two USB two point ports, uh, a full Wi-Fi thing, uh, and and that's only not like I'm just looking at the top of the board. I mean, there's a ton more. It's got built-in
1: analog digital converters and stuff like that on it as
0: well. A uh, camera port and stuff. I so I guess it is kind of. It's like it's an expanded Raspberry Pi. Go figure. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Oh, uh. You know, I, I noticed that he's using a ddr uh, S-O-D-I-M-M-D-D-R-2 socket. Uh, quick bit of, uh, I guess, um, what's the right word to use here? Uh, a suggestion for anyone who is looking at uh, getting those D- uh, memory sockets. Check the data sheet and make sure that when you're looking at the footprint, it says what direction you're looking at the connector cuz that totally bit me the other day on a lot of memory sockets and it sucked. Oh wow. So, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, look at look at the data sheet and if the data sheet ever says, you know, uh, looking from connector side or looking from backside, first of all Oh, that was the one that hit you? Yeah
1: and it was from the backside
0: yeah it was from the backside oh. so so the entire footprint was the footprint was correct luckily the part that we purchased was the exact opposite so for some reason this this company offers the exact same part in a upside down version or a right side up version depending on how you want to insert your thing and Oh. We purchased a bunch of the wrong ones. So, first of all, write the people who make these products and say, don't ever do that. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's what we should do. That's, so, that's the first thing. Sir.
1: So the connector I'm using with mine is the 1473149-4. Let me, uh, I'll, I'll throw that in the show cool. notes so I don't forget about it. <laughs> um, and so this one works with the Raspberry Pi. Um, I think TE Connectivity makes it? That looks like a TE Connectivity, Yep, it is a TE Connectivity part. I bet you there's cheaper ones out there, but that's one that you can just... I was about to say you can buy it on Mauser, but it's out of stock. Oh, is it really?
0: Yeah, yes. maybe because we bought them all. <laughs> 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 yeah, watch out, watch out for that. Oh, you know what? Actually, yeah, <laughs> go figure. Uh, yeah, be very careful. Look on page two of the data sheet and it says reference PCB board pattern layout. And then in parentheses, it says connector mounting side. Interesting. Be very careful. Very careful about uh, reading that properly.
1: Gotcha. Oh, yeah. connector
0: mounting side. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because I designed okay, yeah. that part like two years ago or something. <laughs>
0: <And> <laughs> I it's would been fine. It. I've built
1: boards with it. Oh, okay. So okay. is that
0: yeah. a seek? C- so did you buy this one? Uh, we bought a TE connectivity. I, I don't I don't know if it's exactly that one. Gotcha. Um, I, I just recognize the data sheet because I spent a, I spent a while confirming the footprint and I'm like, ah, this is all great. And then we buy it and it's upside down. So you're uh, not you're not building a product with a Raspberry Pi compute module in it? Uh I don't know. Gotcha. I, I don't know the answer to that. I just know I needed that footprint. Gotcha.
1: All right, Steven. Yeah. What have you been working on besides messing up connector footprints? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and 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 my boss listens, so he's he'll he'll probably he'll probably chuckle at that. Uh, so uh, okay, yeah. So I've been spending some time working on uh, that that crazy twenty band EQ, uh, dude. Those renders that you sent me are insane. Yeah, they look awesome, don't they? Uh, I, I like all,
1: how the front okay. panel is. It's seriously just. Knobs, knobs 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 slider slider slide
0: like there's no blank space on it it's awesome oh that's the whole point yeah that's that is absolutely the whole point every every ounce of that chassis is going to be used or at least the front panel on it and so i've been devising some ways to get uh some unique stuff going and i i've got some some experiments i'm going to work with in terms of leds and l- maybe illuminating text on the front of mm-hmm. the chassis i don't know we'll see uh, now, now that I'm really like flying on Fusion 360, it's it's actually not a necessarily a good thing in my mind uh, because like I'm like ooh I can I can model this thing up and then I can put it in there and I can prove that it'll work because I can just see that it works you know like <laughs> uh, so like maybe I maybe it's it's not a good thing for the feature creeping but uh, th- what I'm actually solving problems because because first of all uh, I don't have the ability to cut very well the full 16 inch chassis that I've been working on. Uh, I mean, I, the, the mill that I have access to can certainly cut it. It's just, I'll have to move the chassis multiple times because it doesn't have a 16 inch throw. It's all have to re zero each time. And that's a little annoying, but I can probably pull that off. The biggest thing is I don't have the capability to print on the chassis itself. Uh, I have a print, I have access to a printer at work, it's just the chassis is too big to fit inside. Uh, the, the The printer has a six inch uh, Z travel, mm-hmm. and uh, my chassis is eight inches deep, so I can't put it in there. And I'd have to set it vertically to actually have the print head print on it. So I'm I'm coming up with different ways to work that out. And so I got I actually got some uh, some material at work that I'm going to play around with, and maybe in a future podcast I'll share with you know what i've seen on that if it's a success if not maybe i'll just tell you that it was crap <laughs> you got the video it, uh, it it printing on it well uh, so i'm not going to be doing i'm not going to actually well uh, that's the secret i'm not i'm not printing okay. Okay. uh I've, I'm, i i'm i'm maybe milling text we'll we'll see how that goes ah yeah funny. yeah i've i've got i've got some crazy ideas coming going on uh, upstairs so uh regardless i've been working on that 20 band equalizer and uh i'll i'll post up all the renderings or the image of the renderings that I've been doing and so this 20 band EQ one of the things about it is I I wanted to have all of the slide potentiometers close to each other each slide potentiometer is uh nine and a half millimeters wide and so I spaced them 10 millimeters each so they're basically right next to each other what's the tolerance on that half a millimeter (laughs) uh no no I mean like it'll totally work uh it's it's they're not gonna it's not going to be an issue. Um, the, but the, but the thing about it is if you space them that close together, then the circuitry for each band has to fit within a window of 10 millimeters. Mm -hmm. And some of the chips I can get in small packages, but some of them only come in like S O I C 16s and that eats up like the entirety of 10 millimeter wide. Uh, and so what that, what that means is if you put all the slide pots in a row, all 20, and in fact, I have 21, so 20 of them act as uh, cut boost sliders, mm-hmm. and then the, the 21st one acts as the master volume, basically, for gotcha. the whole thing. So it's really 21 of these things. So this board is 210 millimeters wide by 48 millimeters high, and each slide potentiometer has a slide of um, range of 30 millimeters. So... If you think about it, like if you line all of those potentiometers up and then you slap one giant PCB on the back, you would you have basically no room to put, all your put parts each on band all on the back. And on top of that, there has to be a power supply with it. And there's other like ancillary stuff that happens with it, too. So I needed a different solution. And what I came up with was I can use a PCI Express connector on the back of each one of these pots because those are less than 10 millimeters and then each band can be its own pluggable board that plugs into the back of this master like distribution gotcha, board that gotcha. goes yeah. on the back so 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 because the thing is i have space going into the chassis i don't have lots of i guess if you think about it i guess that's like depth yeah you have z the but not x and y yeah exactly exactly so uh so I started, I started designing around that and, and that actually worked out pretty well. Um, and the renderings, we, uh, you'll see that I have a whole line of these PCI, uh, express connectors. And one of the things that was interesting is, as I was originally designing everything around just doing some headers. And I realized that in general, the headers that are readily available that have a data sheet, and that's kind of where the asterisk is, um, were actually ended up being more expensive than doing a card edge connection uh, thing, and mind you, I have to do this board twenty one times. So, any anything that I do, or any design decision I make, instantaneously gets multiplied by twenty one. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I'm thinking about the overall cost of this. I want to build one of these things for my for this amp that I'm designing, and I don't want it to get stupid expensive. And so, if you go with a header solution. I didn't necessarily want to do a lot of through-hole header stuff. I, w- I was looking more at surface mount stuff. It gets real expensive real fast. And and that asterisk I was saying earlier about a header having a data sheet, like, I want to actually be able to, to design this thing, and I want to be able to model it, so I have to have some dimensional drawing. So in other words, mm. I can't just go to Amazon or eBay and buy one of their grab bags of whatever headers, headers are available. Be, I mean... Technically, I could, but then it becomes really difficult to make a footprint for it and becomes really difficult to make a 3D model for it. And so I wanted something that, you know, was available on Mouser. And so I found some, like I said, some PCI Express connectors that are card edge connectors. And what's cool is they already have a 3D model available. So I could just download it and dump it into <laughs> VEASAN 360, which is awesome. I'm totally down for that. It's a and, good question.
1: Uh, yeah. So the... So you have a back plane that goes across all the slide pots, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. And the slide pots are through hole. Yes. Are the is the PCI Express slot through hole or surface mount? It's through hole too, actually. So you're gonna have to. I'm gonna assume you have to solder all the PCI Express first. Yep. And then the slide
0: pot, and you've made sure there's clearance between that all that stuff. Not only have I made sure there's clearance, Fusion 360 has made sure there's clearance for me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, I double checked on all that. Uh, I, I honestly I spent about a week looking for connectors, and I know that sounds like a long time, but nah, that it sounds was- about if,
1: if when you need to find the right connector.
0: Oh yeah. That's connectors are the worst. Correct. We've talked about this multiple times. It's the worst searching for connectors. I spent more time searching for this one connector than I did designing the entire equalizer. Uh, so it's just, that's sort of the way it goes, but I finally landed on one where it's not going to break the bank and, uh, and it works. Although I've, I, well, okay, let's, so let me, let me talk about one thing real quick. The the one of the boards or the, the the one board that is not a band for the EQ. It's basically the, the volume controller and stuff. I'm putting all the power supply stuff on that module that plugs in. And so all the ins and outs to this entire sub circuit, the equalizer, all exist on one of the modules. And that module then sends signals and power and ground and everything down to the main distribution board that gets sent to all the bands, and then all the information comes back. So basically, I'm I'm making this whole big chunk of circuitry where it has one small board where everything goes in and out, which is nice. However, you have a bunch of signals then that you have to pass down to this distribution board and get all over the place. Mm -hmm. So I've got a positive 12 volt, a negative 12 volt. I have a positive 5 volt reference voltage, which is just a real stable 5 volt. A negative 5 volt reference, ground, a cut signal, a boost signal, a potentiometer pin for analog control, and then a ton of signals that all represent each band. Mm-hmm. And so it ends up being around 50 to 55 signals or power or ground or, or just individual nets effectively that have to flow around. And uh, I realized earlier that I picked... A 36-pin PCIe connector, because I was I was doing something. Well, I I went down the path on on a specific design that I just don't think that I'm happy with, and I'm going to change it now. Mm-hmm. Basically, the the style of EQ that I'm doing is is everything exists within a feedback loop or two feedback loops actually, where one feedback loop, if you increase a potentiometer, then it. One feedback loop takes over, and you get a boost, and then the opposite is true if you turn the potential the other way. And what it mm-hmm. ends up, ha- what it ends up happening is you have the inverting terminal of an op amp be one inverting terminal is is the the cut terminal, and the other one is the boost terminal. And so I have twenty different signals going to one inverting terminal of an op amp, and then twenty other signals going to another inverting terminal, and. I previously had it where that terminal was open and available to my distribution board, my backplane board. Mm -hmm. And I realized that that's just not going to do well. That's just inviting noise and oscillation into the whole circuit. Yeah. Um, And the reason why I did that is because I wanted to mix everything on the distribution board, but the, the, the signals are, are going to be, they're going to be strong, but the impedance is really going to be hard to control. And there's, parasitic capacitance and long trace length and all kinds of stuff. It's just, I realized that's just not going to work well. So in other words, I can't take the 20 signals and mix them together on the distribution board. I'm going to have to take 20 individual signals and send them across the distribution board. And in fact, 40 individual signals, because I have 20 cuts and 20 boosts. So I'm going to have to go from a 36 pin PCIe up to the 64 pin PCIe uh which I measured it and it's close it (laughs) close in terms of like it's it's gonna be it's gonna be a real tight fit in in terms of my distribution board but regardless I think it'll all work out in the end so um
1: are you gonna go with the same family of part so you don't have to like search for Another week to find a 64 yeah, pin. Yeah. And what's,
0: what's great is you change one number in the part number and it goes from 36 pins to 64, and it raised the cost of each connector by like three cents or something like that. So I basically, all I have to do is re download the 3D model and then change my footprint. And it's not bad. I basically, have it. Yeah. So that was a mouthful, I know, but like that's kind of what I've been working on. So have you gotten to. I guess I guess you haven't gotten
1: to doing the beveled edges stuff then.
0: Actually, so I I did design the the daughter board that connects into the PCI connectors. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, I have gotten to that point. Um, well, I, I was I was messing with that last night. It's just it's kind of it's sloppy right now. I haven't cleaned it up. Uh, I have a board outline and I know where the pins are supposed to be. They're not really there yet. <laughs> <laughs> so when you Uh, I guess when you finally get to that point,
1: we'll have to talk about uh, CAD design for beveled edges and hard gold fingers.
0: Yeah, yeah, because I don't think we've talked about that before. Like, how do you specify gold fingers? How do you specify a PCB edge connection? And how do you actually get one made? I think that's a good topic. Yeah. Coming soon
1: on a map near you. All right. And so before we get to the RFO, we do have one question from the Slack channel. And is what beers should we consume so that we can play along at home? I guess Ooh. whatever beer
0: is cold, cold well, okay, so the, obviously there's there's two rules to beer before anything gets asked. The best beer is free, the next best beer is cold, Correct. and then you can start talking about all the all the details, right?
1: Yes, yes. so i'm I'm currently drinking three
0: Nations haze wizard. You know, I, I have to admit I don't have a beer in front of me right now, but I'm battling a cold, so. Yeah, you have a, you have a beer's not a good exception right there. Exemption. However, okay, so there is a there is a, an excellent beer that if you can get a chance to get it, I don't know if, 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 if it's even available outside of Denver, but uh, it's called Pretzel Assassin by Denver Beer Co. I think that's Denver. Yeah, I think it's.
1: You've told me about this beer. It, it does not sound tasty. Oh, it's
0: delicious. It's absolutely amazing. So so if you can get your hands on some pretzel assassin, do it.
1: All right, so on to the RFO.
0: So the first one is going to be debugging
1: I2C with hardware, which is kind of what you typically do. Um, but this is a piece of hardware that kind of makes it easier to debug I2C. And it's called the I2C driver. And it's a uh, crowdfunded piece of hardware and software packaged by James Bowman. Uh, It's an open source tool that basically can easily drive I2C devices. Um, So it's like a little board that's got a screen on it and then it's got USB. So the USB hooks up to your computer and then you hook up your I2C device, like a breakout board or whatever, to this board. And you can send commands with a GUI or command line or you can like script it with Python or C++. And you can basically you can see the commands what's happening on the screen as well so like i think you can pause it with the gui as well so you can see what like what the actual data is and you know pretty
0: interesting way
1: of going about i squared c development
0: yeah it's kind of it's cool too because it shows the voltage and it also shows the current consumption uh that's that's flowing through it and uh and the screen i love it it actually has two small little waveforms to show what's going on that's kind of cool yeah it's a pretty pretty neat little device i i ordered one i think it was like thirty dollars okay so if i mean if you're if you're hammering an i-squared c all the time then yeah i
1: do tons of i square c stuff so I, I was looking at that and i'm like huh that would be very useful for just like instead of having to bang out code on like a pair a parallax propeller or a uh if eight just to see if hardware is working i could use that instead
0: yeah that's true that's yeah that's that's a- A good way of putting it. Now, now, do you prefer I squared C over spy? Or actually, and a secondary question, do you call it SPI or spy? I call it spy. Okay. And I squared C is just a protocol across spy.
1: So, yes. Yeah,
0: if you want to get real technical, it is. But people lump them into two different categories.
1: Yeah, because spy usually really means only one device is really on that bus. Unless you have chip selects,
0: oh, I was about to say, yeah, chip selects mean that it's not right. I mean, technically, they're all on, well. Okay, <laughs> that's that's a weird one there
1: too. It is. Where I yeah. score C though. Everything is just an address instead, so it's yeah. uh,
0: So you don't need chip selects, so you save I O. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and that's usually why it's been um, uh, preferable because you you fewer pins now. So I would say I don't have a preference.
1: I would I usually prefer I 2 C because it uses less pins and thus there's less stuff to route. Unless it's like like if it's like a dedicated DAC or ADC, then I'd use spy. Like I'm like I'm only going to use this bus for this one part or yeah. this one function. Then yeah, spy would be preferred. That way you're not even wasting address. Um you know, having to send the address when you only have one device there. <laughs> well, and,
0: and generally Spy is a lot faster, right, uh, than than I2C? D- depends. Um, You have a more efficient data
1: rate. At, at the same clock speed, you have a more efficient data rate because you don't have to send an address with Spy usually.
0: Have you ever run out of addresses with I2C? No, I have not. Uh, I have I, I I've seen either, conflicts but- before, but not on my own stuff I've designed well I I was working with a max chip a while back that I in the data sheet it only had the ability to have three separate addresses uh so and and I could see a design easily needing more than three of these chips which Mm -hmm. would just basically be like well sorry you know or or I guess you could just do a different I2C bus but at that point you're defeating the purpose right correct yeah yeah, I've seen that before too, but I've never ran into it with my own designs. Yeah, I guess I've never run out of it. I just But I guess I guess if you're if you're speccing your design and you wanted to use that chip and then realized you couldn't, then you'd just go find a different one, right? Yeah, basically.
1: So I guess that's a good thing if you're an embedded system designer, is look at your chips if they're I 2 C and making sure they don't conflict on you know the uh the uh firmware bus. That, yeah, yeah. So that's actually something the hardware engineers should be doing when they're designing the board. At least the – that's actually not even a board layout thing. That's a high-level, we-are-choosing-these-parts
0: level before you even get to schematic or layout. Oh, for sure. But but also, I think that's an excellent time to write a note on your schematic. Like, especially if the address is set by, like, pulling pins high or low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Write the address as a note on the schematic, and then it's that much easier. Yeah, I actually do that. I'll write down, like,
1: if they have select pins, I'll write down, basically I'll write down, if I put the select 000, it's this address, 001, it's this one, etc. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. And I've totally done that before where I've written the entire table on the schematic. Yep. Where if later on I need to go back and change something, I don't want to dig through the data sheet again. It's right there on my schematic. Yep. Yeah. So much easier. Man, we need to have
1: like a collection of those little tiny MEP, MEP tips. <laughs> Hot tips by MEP. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, our next. RFO is uh, low cost reverse polarity and overcurrent protection and this was a video that Jerry Ellsworth put out earlier this week.
0: Yeah, so reverse polarity protection. uh, It's actually a really great little video that uh, Jerry threw together to talk about a couple of different methods of doing uh, reverse polarity protection and I love it because the first one she calls out, she's just like, well, one of the options is just do nothing and (laughs) <laughs> it's just, trust it's that your users will plug
1: it to plug it in correctly every single
0: time yeah well and she has she has a pretty good little like few second rant about like if if something can be broken your users will find it like it's just <laughs> a guarantee so uh she actually shows she shows a couple of of methods for uh reverse polarity protection and she kind of like steps them up in in i guess a sort of hierarchy and um she starts with just a diode input so you know if you put a diode right at the input uh if you if you put your your power input backwards then you're uh, you're you're reverse biasing a diode and it just won't conduct so it's sort of unless a unless you go mode.
1: over the reverse bias voltage
0: well, yeah, I mean, nothing will survive that at that point, you know. Yeah, if your
1: user is putting 500 volts across a 12-volt device, I mean,
0: it it's game the over user anyway. probably,
1: you know, it's going to expect it to die, right? Right,
0: right. So, so that's sort of like, it's a brute force, it's a really cheap method, and it's not necessarily going to work well. There's a lot of problems with it. It's got heat. You have an inherent voltage drop. Uh, you have a single-point failure, all kinds of... Bad things. So the next thing she talked about is the uh, the exploding diode, which is a reverse diode to ground, such that if you put something in backwards, then basically you're you're shorting your power supply through a diode, or you're shorting your battery, or whatever you do it. It's kind of obvious to tell that that's also not necessarily a good way of uh, working, you know, uh, having reverse polarity protection, mainly because. You short your power supply, which is not necessarily a good thing. But also, you know, if you have that diode that does explode, after it explodes, you're not protected anymore. So Correct, it doesn't yeah. really. So you're protected for much.
1: about 15 seconds. Yeah, while it heats up and starts smoking.
0: What, what I've seen with those kinds of solutions is that, like, if you plug them in backwards, it, there's some kind of indicator that will also tell you that it's backwards. It's or the device it. itself is not turning on. Yeah, right, right, and then you go and look. So, yeah,
1: that, uh, that's another really cheap method. But then, so the- there is a um, an extended version of that that I've done before. That is a uh, you put the the diode backwards across the rails, right? Yeah. But you also put a in series to like the input or output. You put a PTC fuse. Oh that's yeah, that's like yeah. that's rated very high. Like your device is only going to use like a quarter of an amp. But then you put a one amp PTC. So during normal operation, there's not a lot of drop across it. Yeah. But when you're in reverse, it's going to dump a lot of power across that diode, but it will eventually shut it off with that fuse. So you don't actually blow the fuse up. Yeah. So It's a
0: pretty solid solution and cheap too, right? Yeah. It's just one more part. Right, right. Well and, and, and as with so many solutions like this, you know, as we're going up in the hierarchy, you're effectively adding one more mm-hmm. part each time. It's basically more complexity. Right. And one of the more like commonly accepted ways of doing this is uh with a PMOS FET right at the uh, right at the input. So basically the, the the PFET acts as a switch that just will turn on when you have the correct polarity and will not turn on if you don't. Uh, and so it it depends on how it's all excuse me properly connected um but but you can you can get really cheap really simple reverse polarity protection with uh with a pmos fet and that's based mainly on the fact that fets nowadays are incredibly cheap they can handle a lot of juice and when they turn on you can find fets that have very low rds which is their internal resist, channel resistance so um it's like it's almost not there when everything's working properly and then it opens entirely when things are not working properly so it's it's about the best you can get out of it yeah I, I
1: generally design with uh the Pfets for reverse bias p- polarity production
0: yeah yeah and and just yeah I don't know it's a it's it's a pretty pretty straightforward um, uh, solution there's a lot of information online and if you just google fet reverse polarity protection there's just Tons and tons of pictures of it. Now, um, Jerry also, she was talking about in this video, she was talking about a uh, previous design that she was working on where she was doing some current limiting. So with with a, a handful more voodoo, you can actually have it be reverse polarity protection and you can do current um, limiting. And she actually tested uh. it. And works out pretty well.
1: Yeah, I'm going to have to look that one up.
0: Yeah, go check it out. It's a short video, but it uh, but it's a bunch of good information i didn't notice that she has a robbie robot on her desk hell yeah she does and you know what's funny when i when i first moved up to denver i went over to um one of my buddies at work and uh sitting right next to his dinner table there's a robbie robot right there that he bought his wife for christmas because she was she she liked it you know when she was (laughs) a kid and i was like yes it's just like where's yours at uh you know I'm still unpacking just because we moved like 2 weeks ago so yeah, two weeks it's ago. somewhere I have no idea where. Yeah.
1: Oh, what's up? We should eventually design a mep open source Robbie robot style bot
0: that you can 3D print. That'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can learn how to save your pennies because people carry change in. No, it eats ICs. <laughs> <laughs> no, we need a Robbie robot. That somehow eats bitcoins. (laughs) It
1: eats digital currency?
0: Yeah, yeah. Blockchain (laughs) Ravi Robot.
1: Do you have anything else, Stephen? I think that's lost RFO. I think that's it. Yeah. So uh, that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Parker Dolman and Stephen Craig. See you next time, guys. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, a listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, topic, or Robbie robot story, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer with no O's, or at Analog E-N-G, which is Stevens, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. That's probably the easiest way because trying to remember all those other ones is probably a lot harder. Uh, also, check out our Slack channel. Uh, we hang out in the Slack channel all the time, uh, talk to our listeners. We suggest cool project ideas, find cool parts, post them there all the time. So that's kind of like the MEP after hours. Um, and if you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. We have a new mailing list for the podcast. So go to macfab.com slash blog slash podcast. There'll be a annoying pop-up that will pop up. Type in your email address, hit submit, and you will be on our new mailing list. And so that way you get the latest MEP episode right when it releases. And please review the podcast wherever you listen as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.